I'll tell you, baptisms, baby dedications, we've had an awesome couple of weeks. I love it. I love it. So there was a, there was a documentary that came out by the BBC uh, not too long ago about Jesus Christ. And in that documentary, there was a guy, it was, it was put together by a guy, Jeremy Bowen. And he came to this conclusion in that documentary. He said, the important thing is not what he was. This is talking about Jesus. Not what he was or what he wasn't. The important thing is what people believe him to have been. A massive worldwide religion numbering more than 2 billion people follows his memory. That's pretty remarkable, 2,000 years on. Now that comes from Jeremy Bowen, the making of this, this uh, BBC documentary on Jesus. And I want to say that Mr. Bowen could not be more wrong. Everything that is foundational to the Christian faith comes to the question of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Now, this is written from an unbeliever's perspective, but even for those of us who are believers, we have a tendency to do something. We have a tendency to craft Jesus into our own making. In other words, we tend to think that the songs we listen to on the radio are the songs that Jesus would have listened to. The movies that we like to see are the movies that Jesus would have liked to have seen. And in Kevin DeYoung's book called Who Do You Say That I Am, he offers us a deeper glimpse of this, what he calls these Americanized Jesuses that we come up with. Let me share a few with you. First of all, there's the Republican Jesus. Uh, who is against tax increases and activist judges for family values and owning firearms. It's <laughs> a good Wyoming response there. There's Democrat Jesus who is against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's Therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. And then there's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. <laughs> and then there's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded <laughs> as you. Then there's Touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. And then finally, there's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. So see, we've got all these different Jesuses that we've made in America. And, and the question comes to you, well, who is your Jesus? What kind of music does he listen to? What books does he read? See, a lot of people say that um, Jesus was a good teacher. Uh, he loved people. He, he did nice things. But you see, there was this claim that Jesus made. Because Jesus said, I am God. This man who walked on the earth said to the authorities, to those around him, he said, I am God. Now see, that's just full of paradoxes. Because when we think about God, we know him to be holy and eternal and all-powerful and all-knowing. He's present everywhere. He's infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. This is, is God. 
But then when I consider humanity, the human being, I mean, there's sickness, there's tiredness, there's a beginning, they die. Um, humans have to, to take naps. There's all these things that a human has to do that doesn't fit with who God is. So how then do these two different natures, the, the eternal God, the finite man, how do they come together in a single person? You see, this is a, a huge mystery. See, if all that is true, how in the world can those two natures come, come together? And it leads us to this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This question, how you answer it, is absolutely fundamental. It's foundational to the Christian faith. We're currently in a series called Who is God? And we're diving into this question because the question that Jesus asked his disciples and the question that comes to us is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Because how you answer that question is going to determine basically everything about you. How you view yourself, how you view others, how you view the universe comes down to this question, who do you say that he is? So I want to unpack this this morning. I want to do that by answering four questions. First of all, what does it mean that Jesus is both God and man? What does that even mean? Secondly, why did he have to be 100% human? Then why did he have to be 100% God? And then lastly, what does that mean for us? So we're going to answer these four questions this morning. And first of all, I want to go into that first question. What do we mean when we say that Jesus is God and man? And throughout the scriptures, you'll see Jesus referred to, he's the son of God. He's also called the son of man, depending on what kind of emphasis is being placed there. He's called both. And this brought some, some confusion to the early Christians. So well-meaning bishops and pastors, they, they thought we, we need to sort of unravel the meaning of Jesus having these two natures. I mean, how do they come together? What, is, what does this mean? So in doing this, inevitably they came up with some bad ideas. Now, I believe that contrast brings clarity. So I like to go through, well, what are these bad ideas that people came up with concerning Jesus and his two natures and coming together. And the first one is the God in a bod idea. Meaning, Christ was God who took on a human body without a human mind, soul, or spirit. <clears throat> the divine mind took the place of what would have been the immaterial part of a man. The word became flesh only in the sense that God took on a human body. Now, the guy that came up with that, um, he was a, a bishop um, in Laodicea. His name was Apollinaris. So this idea, here's the, the long name, Apollinarianism. Can we all say that together? Apollinarianism. Isn't that just fun to say? Doesn't it just roll off the tongue? Well, it's bad. It's bad. Um, it wasn't a good idea. And, and here's what it holds, and here's really the problem with it. It wasn't just our bodies that needed to be redeemed and represented by Christ and his redemptive work, but our human minds and souls as well. Yes, Jesus had a human body, but see, this view kind of holds that, uh, just imagine a pumpkin that you, that you scoop the innards out of, 
and put a, a candle in or something. It was almost like God just scooped the innards out of a human being and entered in to where he's just sort of wearing a man suit. And this was rejected by the church leaders because this, frankly, it just does not work. And I think Hebrews 2.17 is a good reason it doesn't work. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, as speaking of Jesus, in every respect. Every respect. So this was rejected. It just wasn't going to work. And then there was a second view of how the humanity and the deity come together. You can call this the taped together idea. And uh, in, in this view, Christ was fully man and fully God. And these two natures were united in purpose, not person. Christ was two persons with two natures. Now, this was espoused by this guy named Nestorius. And uh, he was a bishop in Constantinople. That's modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. And um, this, too, it's, it's got its problems. Because inevitably what you end up with is two persons. That Christ isn't one single person, but he's actually two persons. You've got the God person and you've got the man person. It's almost like you know, the cartoons where you had the good angel and bad angel disputing with each other on the shoulders. It's, it's sort of something like that. And this idea was rejected. And here's the reason. By the way, I'm referencing this guy, Grudem, a lot. I highly recommend, if you get a copy of Wayne Grudem's uh, theology, it's, it's a systematic theology, and it's very, frankly, it's very easy to read. It's got great questions in it. I'd recommend it if you don't have a copy of that. It's Wayne Grudem. And he says this, uh, nowhere do we have an indication of the human and divine natures uh, talking to each other or struggling within Christ. You never see Jesus referred to as they, as though he were two persons. You never see an internal struggle between the divine and the flesh. So this was rejected. Uh, the church insisted that Jesus was one person, but he had two natures. And then there's a third idea. It's the blended up idea. Christ's human nature was integrated with his divine nature, forming a new nature, like a third thing. Christ was from two natures before the union, but only, but only one after the union. Okay, so you could, if you think of a blender, if you take a tomato and throw it in the blender, you've got tomato juice. Uh, if you take a carrot and you throw it in the blender, you've got carrot juice. But if you take a tomato and a carrot and you throw it in the blender together, you've just got some third thing. Just, uh, you can call it yuck. I don't know what that would taste like. But it's neither tomato juice, it's not carrot juice, it's just something else. That's what we have here. We've got this third something else. This combination of the two natures all blended up together. Um, this, this was a guy, his name was Eutyches, that came up with this. This is called Eutychianism, and Eutyches was from a similar place, uh, Istanbul, Turkey. He was a bishop there. So you, we struggle through this. There's these wrong ideas that can, frankly, gain ground, but then the question comes, well, what's, what's the right idea? Well, this is Grudem's problem with Eutychianism. Christ was neither truly God nor truly man, and if that was so, he could not truly represent us as a man or could he be true God and able to earn our salvation? So that's, that's the problem with Eutychianism. So then, what's the right idea? What's the right idea? Because these, these 
ideas were coming up and they were conflicting with each other. So the church leaders said, Jesus is pretty important to this thing we're doing called Christianity. Uh, we need to know who he is. So they got together in a place called Chalcedon. In the year 451, they said, well, we're going to put our heads together. Holy Spirit-filled men who believe if they went through the scriptures, they could come up with the right idea, right idea of who Jesus was and how these two natures come together. So they did that. It was October 8th, November 1st. Uh, it was just 1,568 years ago, like this week, that they got together and had this Council of Chalcedon. They came up with something called the Chalcedonian Definition of Jesus. And here's what it says. This is a portion of it. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion. Okay, that's against the blender idea, without change, without division. That's against the taped together idea. And without separation, that's against the God and abide idea. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same. This should blow your mind once you get your hands around this as much as you can, because follow me here. What this is saying is that when Mary as a virgin gave birth to Jesus, she gave birth to a child who was fully God and fully man. That in the arms of Mary, helpless, having to be fed, having to have his diaper changed, was Jesus the one holding the entire universe together. In addition to that, whenever Jesus was doing miracles, when he was raising Lazarus from the dead, when he was walking on water, when he was turning um, one meal into thousands, he was still fully man. 100% man. He still got tired. He still had to eat himself. He had to do all the things that we do. See, he didn't just flip in and out of God mode and man mode. He was both all the time. 100% God, 100% man, fully God, fully man, two natures, all the time. So, this is the, the orthodox view of Jesus. Um, he's 100% 100, 100, not 95-5, not 75-25, not 50-50, he's 100 100. Uh, why then did he have to be human? Why did he have to be 100% human? I want to go through four reasons here. First of all, to obey in our place. To obey in our place. He came and did what everyone else had failed to do. Uh, Adam was created without sin. He came into the world without sin, as did Eve. And this quickly went south. So no human being has walked on earth perfectly and without sin. Jesus is often compared to Adam. As a matter of fact, he's called the second Adam. He came here to do what Adam could not. And in Romans 5, 18 and 19, it says, Therefore, as one, tre one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus had to come to be our representative and obey in our place. None of us could have done it. And notice how many times in these passages it says man. Jesus is referred to in these passages not as God, but as man. Secondly, he came to be our substitute. He came to be our substitute. This week, I'm actually focusing on the person of Jesus Christ. Next week, I'm going to focus on the work of Jesus Christ. What was it that he did? What is it that he accomplished in his death and resurrection? Why was it all necessary? We'll cover that next week. Uh, that's the idea of him being our substitute. He stepped in and took the penalty. He was our substitute and took the penalty so we wouldn't have to. More on that next week. Third, to be the mediator between God and men. To be the mediator between God and men. When Adam sinned, um, everyone that would come after him, everybody, without exception, was also going to be born a sinner. And the, the relationship between God and man was broken. And it had to be repaired. And someone would have to come who could both represent God to us and us to God. Paul talks about this in Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, notice again it says the man, focusing on his humanity, the man Christ Jesus. So he came to mediate between us and God. And I love the way Augustine puts this. Again, St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers around uh, 4th century A.D., he said, God became a man for this purpose. Since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other humans, you might now reach God through a man. And so the man Christ Jesus became the mediator of God and human beings. God became a man so that following a man, something you are able to do, you might reach God, which was formerly impossible to you. So see... He was 100% man, 100%. And then finally, he was 100% man to be our example, to be our example. Uh, in 1 John 2, 6, it says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What does that mean? Jesus came to earth to show us how to do this thing called life, to show us how to live. To show us how to respond when people wrong you, as well as when they do good things to you. He showed us. And those things are recorded in the Word of God. One of the things we do when we open up the Scriptures is understand, how am I supposed to live? When I bring my life up against the Scriptures, when I bring it up against Christ, no, I'm not doing it perfectly, but it's teaching us how to live. Um... We wouldn't have anything to shoot for, frankly, if Jesus hadn't come and taught us and been our example. So these are the reasons he had to be man. We had to be saved in every way. But not only was he man, he was also 100% God. Now, why did he need to be 100% God? And first of all is to bear the weight and the penalty of our sin. No human being could have done this. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he took upon himself... All the sins of mankind, all the ones that had been committed, all the ones that would be committed, he took it on himself 
to bear it, to bear the penalty of it. Only God could have done that. In addition to that, he came to save man. Man could not have saved himself. And very plainly stated in Jonah 2, 9, it says salvation belongs to the Lord. No human being could save mankind. God was going to have to come to earth himself and do the job that we could never have done. And thirdly, again, Jesus came to be the mediator between God and man. He had to be fully man and fully God in order to be able to do that. Um, I want to stop this section with this, this quote from Gregory of, Gregory of Nazianzus. He was, he was called a Cappadocian father, and he was actually there at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, we talked about that last week. And he said this, What God has not assumed, he cannot save. Had God just been God in a, had Jesus just been in the God suit, he couldn't have saved the immaterial part of us. If he had just been the immaterial part of us, he couldn't have saved us physically. Jesus had to be both. He had to be every part of the human being in order to redeem and save every part of the human being. So he had to be 100% God and 100% man. Uh, again, not 50-50, not 75-25, but 100-100. So then, what does this mean for us? Uh, what does it mean? How do I respond to all these things concerning the person of Jesus Christ? And first of all, it means that we trust him. We trust him. That means, that, that means everything Jesus said, I believe to be true. A hundred percent. I believe that he's God. I trust what he said. Now, some will bring the accusation against Christians that we, we, you guys are just, you're, you're blind. You're just blindly following this guy. And you're, you're following and you're, you're doing what he, but why? I mean, in, in a rational place, in a, in a rational era that we're living in, why would we believe these things? Are we just sort of like lemmings doing what our parents did? It's worth asking that question. But the fact is, no. This is not just a blind faith that has no reason. Okay, first of all, we have evidence that Jesus was God. It was his miracles. Jesus came and did miracles so we would know that he was God. Uh, actually, in John, um, he talks about this. In the Gospel of John, uh, verses, yes, thank you, you changed the reference. John 20, verses 30 and 31 it says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus did miracles in front of everybody else. He did the things that only God could do. And it wasn't just the miracles. You may be thinking, well, just because he did it and somebody may have written it down, what well, does that make it true? You see, there's another, uh, there's, a, there's another powerful component that compels us to believe, and that is the deaths of the apostles. Um, what happened to the, the apostles? Well, Judas committed suicide. The apostle John was exiled to an island called Patmos, but the rest were martyred. Uh, the rest of the disciples died for their faith. Now, most of those deaths are not recorded in the scriptures. 
But I'm going to encourage you to go, and there's, there's a lot of historical sources that talk about the deaths of the apostles. This is a long website, um, and this is going to be in the weekly newsletter. If you get that, this uh, link will be in there. If you Google uh, what happened to the 12 apostles, how do their deaths prove Easter, you'll get this article. And it walks you through the, uh, the, the resources on how we know the apostles died and how they died and, and where they died and when they died. So I would suggest you go check this out because see, if these guys who claim they walked with the resurrected Jesus and they saw his miracles, if they, if they saw these things and they're willing to go out and tell people and die for it, you're really only left with three options. First of all, they died for something they knew to be a lie which is, really goes along with the second one, they were delusional or crazy. Or third, they were right, and Christ did rise from the grave. You're left with those three options because of the martyred deaths of the apostles. So see, this is not a blind faith that we subscribe to. This is not an unreasonable faith that we ascribe to. It has, fan there's fantastic evidence for this. So these are all reasons to trust him. Um, we trust his claims. And when you trust him, it's also necessary to follow him. We also follow him. This is, means doing what he says. There's this moment recorded in Scripture. Jesus is preaching. This is part of his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is recorded in Matthew 7. He's teaching the people all kinds of things. And he says this. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. If you'd been here in the previous service, you would have heard our missionary from, um, well, I'm, for security reasons, I'm not going to say, but we had a missionary here who was talking about what life was like for Christians in his country. And they're brutalized. They're outcasts. As a matter of fact, there's no running water in this country. And they're persecuted even for going and trying to get water. They have no choice but to build their house on the rock because the winds are beating against the house. And maybe that's where you are this morning. The winds are beating. I had a young lady that came up to me uh, a few weeks ago at the end of the service and she, she, had, a, she had a very sincere question. Uh, she's, I believe she's in high school. She said, Chad, what do I do uh, with the, my friends that are coming to me and saying they, they want to kill themselves? She's probably 15 years old, something like that. You young people are facing things that your forebears did not. It's hard. I went to a Christian school. I was sheltered, and it was, it was challenging in some ways. I have no idea all the things that you're facing now. It's difficult. On what will you build your house? The founder of the C.S. Lewis Institute, this guy Thomas Terrence, he kind of summarizes this passage this way. He says, the point Jesus is making in these words is that building one's life on obedience to his teaching is wise 
and will sustain his disciples in the challenges they will inevitably encounter in life. Just as building one's house on a foundation of rock will secure it against the forces of nature that will assault it. You will be assaulted. It's coming in some fashion or another. Someday death itself will come knocking. As a matter of fact, part of my job is to help prepare you for that moment because it's going to come. See, Jesus is the one who died and came back to tell us about it. And then he rose up into heaven and said, guess what? I'm going here to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Have you ever thought about that? You know, if all the universe was created in like six days, I mean, what can, what can the Trinity do in 2,000 years? So we build our house on the rock. Difficulty is going to come. And this will help you to know how to respond. And then finally, we worship him. We worship him. We worship Jesus corporately on Sunday mornings. We come together. We do the things that he commanded us to do. We worship him through baptism and obedience to what he says. We worship him through having communion together. We worship together by coming together and seeing the truth that we believe back to him, to Christ. So my wife and I, we, we have this little dog named Brady. And for all accounts, he's, he's pretty much useless, uh, honestly. He's, you know, he'll snuggle with you. He'll crawl up in your lap and he'll do these things. But sometimes he, he runs out of the house and, and sometimes he'll start chewing on something he's not supposed to. But no matter what Brady is doing in the moment, all it takes is one word and you have 100% of his attention. He will snap to just like that. All you have to do is say the word treat. If you say treat, his eyes get big. His ears will stick out. And it's like all the world just fades away. And why is that? Because that dog worships treats. There's nothing better than a treat. When we come together at the name and in the name of Jesus Christ, all the world, just for 30 minutes, just for an hour, should fade away. And 100% of our focus and attention needs to be on Him. And we come together and we do this. We do this thing on Sunday mornings where we're worshiping. We're worshiping the God that we believe in. Worshiping Him as He knows Himself to be and not in something that we've turned Him into. So put that all together. Trust, follow, and worship the God-man Jesus. Trust, follow, and worship the God-man Jesus. I want to close with the words from Kevin DeYoung's book. I brought this up in the beginning. It's called, Who Do You Say That I Am? And he gives us this final view of who Jesus is. And in that book, he says this. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God. He is the Father, Son, Savior of the world and substitute for our sins. More loving more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we believe you are God. 
we believe that you came to earth, you put on humanity. And Lord Jesus, we trust you, even though we mess up, even though we don't always follow you, God, as we should or as we ought. God, help us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. I pray that as this week comes, as problems come, as difficulty comes, as the storms roll in, that our house would be built on the rock. I pray that we would live with wisdom and not with foolishness. And I pray that we would live uh, with a strong sense of your presence. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.